Hello and welcome. It's yet another podcast. Yet another. Yet another. We're just... No, I was going to say churning them out. That's absolutely <laughs> not what we're doing. Each one is no, lovingly prepared. It is. In no way like a sausage. Yes. No, not at all. This is uh, Books of the Year. Uh, in association with our friends at WH Smith. We're so happy to have them. And and also so happy to have the stickers and the shelving. And the and uh, good to know that all the staff are on board now with us. Uh, that is good to know. I'm going to call in a lot. Yes, I already do. And do, and do you? I, did, right. I, I went in to buy some printer ink. And uh, I just uh, I just sort of casually said, um, oh, there's uh, got, got some interesting books there. Uh, I, and, uh, and an interesting shelf. I see. And they said, yes. They're going like hotcakes, they said, because of the podcast. I said, good, good. This isn't made up, by the way. Yes, it is. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely it is. Um, After last week's uh, show, lots of discussion online about Hollywood's leading men. Yes. This is uh, because Lee Child was talking about... Who should play Jack Reacher. But really, the big question seemed to become, who will play Matt in the film adaptation of this podcast? Yes. Why is it all about you? It's always all about me. I'm going to read these to you, and then you're going to react. Go. Okay. Hilary Hansel says, would you be happy with Kevin Costner, perhaps? Very happy with Kevin Costner, any age. Juliet Turner. How about Greg Davis? Um, Okay. The the comedian, the really tall comedian. Okay, I'm not that tall. No. No, no. So that's a no. Sarah Mankelow, um, I think... He should be played by himself. No one could match that laugh. Quite so this right. Is Matt starring Play, Matt. Played by myself, correct. <clears throat> Alan yeah. Carr has been suggested Alan Carr. by Ray, Rachel. Right, okay. <laughs> Take that in the uh, spirit in which it was intended. Oh, thank you for completing that <laughs> sentence. <laughs> Slater <laughs> says, uh, Kenneth Williams would have what? been perfect. No, just gone with my surname. That's all that is. Kenneth Williams. Um, I mean, come on. And... Anne Hun, I'm going with Hugh Bonneville. Oh, um, yeah. Unless, of course, George Clooney is about I, Finally, finally George Clooney, yes. And Colin Webb said uh, Timmy Mallet. <laughs> Timmy Mallet. Well, um, career yeah. high for me there, I, I think. really don't me think Me and that's... Timmy Mallet. Quite right. Uh, on other matters, yes. uh, this is from Jane Fryer. By the way, you can uh, email us, as Jane has done, to booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. You can tweet us at booksoftheyear. Simon and Matt says, Jane, I listened to your latest glorious podcast. Glorious, five Glorious stars. on my way to work this morning. Congratulations. Isn't Lee Child an inspiring interviewee? Yes, he It is. was fascinating to hear how he writes, and in particular the importance of the tiny details relating to sound, smell, taste, mm. etc. I'm ashamed to say I've never read a Jack Reacher novel, but I'm certainly going to based on the interview I heard today. It sounds as though each one stands alone, but would you suggest I start at the beginning and read them chronologically, or dive in in no particular order. Thank you so much for your fantastic podcast. Fantastic. Well, you've That's read true. more of them than I have. I've I've read probably three or four, and I didn't go in right at the start. So I didn't go in right at the start either. I I think they are written in such a way as you can dip in anywhere. Definitely, yeah. So I would say go with past tense you know i mean in in a sense it's atypical because as he was talking about it it has a kind of that horror inflection because they're in maine and because they're in stephen king country and so that canadian yeah and and also jack is not front of front of stage the entire time actually maybe don't start with okay (laughs) make me i really liked make me okay let's start with that yeah so yeah yeah. okay so yeah so what we would say is don't actually start with the current one you can move on to it fairly swiftly 
but Make Me is a is a pretty good. And of course, um, Lee uh, was saying that he wants to get um, he wants to get suggestions for who should play Jack Reacher, and we've had bags of suggestions, which we will obviously be passing on. What a good Lee. piece of promo that is! It, it is absolutely. Um, uh, who have we got here? We've got Gentle Therapies. Says I don't care how tall he is. Um, uh, Tom, Tom Cruise was the wrong choice. Reacher is big and strong with hands like shovels. Charles Bronson would have made a great Reacher. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. Uh, Lenny Law. All right, Lenny. Ray Stevenson has to be the Netflix Reacher. Age, build, height, presence, face like a brick shed. Uh, Rick Day says Rory McCann, who plays the Hound, would make a great Reacher. Uh, Liz says, in my mind's eye, I always imagine someone like Nick Nolte yes. doing it. Oh, that's a very good choice. Uh, Annie says, as long as he keeps writing the Jack Reacher books, I'll be happy. Bedtimes are getting later, so I can't put them down. Me too. Philip Payne uh, suggests Liam Neeson. Uh, yes! To be the one old enough and the right stature. He's certainly is he is craggy and old yeah no that works that works uh steve riley i've read every reacher book dolph lundgren has been jack in my mind ever since the beginning love your books lee child absolutely my favorite author the release of each new book is a special moment for me dolph lundgren would be a left field choice i think dolph Dolph. yes Mm. basically if you're an underemployed actor in his 40s or 50s Tick, tick. Six, six foot five, yep. hands like shovels. <laughs> it's your lucky day. Anyway, so we'll keep an eye out on that. Uh, anyway, uh, keep the emails coming. Uh, and you email books of the year at yahoo.com. Coming next, see in ranking. And here we are with another Books of the Year podcast. And we're delighted to have one of our all time favourites. In fact, one of the world's all time favourite authors. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> Ian Rankin, how are you doing, Ian? I'm fine, thank you very much. Well, that, I think that's I think that's appropriate, isn't Definitely, it? I don't yeah. know. I don't know. Have you just been number one uh, in the UK? Yes. Yes. And how long were you number one for? Two weeks. There you go. Where are you at the moment? Seven. Okay. Uh, Holding steady at seven, I think, is what we say. I was seven last week, seven this week. Six after, weeks in the charts. After this, you're going to be turning around and just going straight back up to the top. Hopefully, in time for Christmas. When you um. When you've written the number of books that you that you have done and you've got the sales that you have, do you, is there still a, a frisson of uncertainty? You know, when I know you, you know, you have full confidence in your skill and you have full confidence in Rebus to hold our uh, attention. Time has proved that. But is there a, any kind of element of doubt in you? As it comes up to publication. Always, always, always doubt. I mean, well before publication. I mean, before you start the book, you've got panic thinking, well, have I got anything new to say? Is this the book where everybody finds me out? Finally get found out, I don't know what I'm really doing. Um, Do people still want to read about Rebus? Are they still interested in me as an author? All those doubts are flying around. And you're looking at all these young, hungry writers who are nipping at your heels or your knees or further up, um, who all want your sales and success and are doing great things with the genre, great things with the structure of the crime novel. And you think, okay, so you keep having to up your game. You don't want to bore yourself. You don't want to write the same book twice. You want to write a better book. You want this new book to be the best book you've ever written. So that pressure is on you right from the get-go. And that's not from your fans or from your publisher. That's just your conscience, uh, your, your 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 interior life telling you you want the next book to be even better than a book before. And when you've written lots of books, that's not easy to keep And doing. do you think this is the best book you've written? Readers, fans seem to think it's certainly one of the best. Um, you get that cliche. You get people, say, reviewers saying, a return to form. 
You think, hang on a minute, when did I drop? When did the form <laughs> exactly. start to drop? How long ago did that start to drop then? <laughs> exactly. Uh, anyway, the book is called In the House of Lies. Matt, describe the cover, please. Yes, yeah, so we've got brooding cover because it's dominated by shadows and we've got a figure walking across. What, what I'm going to guess here is it looks like sort of a disused theatre, um, but it's basically floorboards, it's derelict, and we've got some light coming in for, from the right-hand side. But uh, Ian's name dominates at the top and then in red, In a House of Lies, a good lie is as hard to find as the truth. And Ooh. I just, I mean, just recently during this UK tour, a guy came to get a book signed and he said, I'm the photographer, I'm the guy who photographed that. He said it's a disused asylum somewhere oh, really? in Yorkshire. Oh, right. And it is a, it's a theatre, it's a big theatre, um, a room that they use as a theatre in this asylum. And it's just a disused big building that he thought was, and it's a friend of his, I think, walking across. Some people think it's me. Uh, which is flattering because I think he's about 20 years younger than me and about two stone lighter, but there you go. So did you see the picture beforehand? Did you say, yeah, yeah that's the one I want to use? Yeah. Well, you get some say in it. You get a little bit of say in it. The, the, in the past, I've sometimes made some mistakes. I said, hey, why don't we have a, you know, and they've, they've gone for it and I've thought, no, it looks terrible. Can we not do that? <laughs> so I, 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 don't get, I don't want a, a big say in the design. I think the designers and the publishers know what they're doing. And the name is, I mean, I've seen it on shelves now in airports and bookshops and you can't escape my name. It's kind of screaming at you. Uh, I've got a, a, mm. there's a, there's always advanced trade copies that come out and, and on, on the front of mine it says, a good lie is as hard to find as the truth. And uh, this copy was lying around my house and my mum came to stay and she said, oh, very interesting. It's a rubbish title. Though. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little wordy. Yeah. yeah, but the title matters, doesn't it? I mean, obviously that was not going to be a title. That's just you know to grab the attention of uh, of, of the press and uh, and of journalists. Yeah, but, but you'd be amazed how many people thought that was the title when uh, when that proof copy oh, really? came out. Yeah, the early the early reading copy came out. People said that's a very long title for you, Ian. <laughs> even longer than normal. Very bold, Ian. Yeah, very yes. bold. <laughs> and your us. name's not even on the front. Um, <laughs> no, the titles are hugely important to me. And normally I've cheated a little bit by using song titles and misheard lyrics or lyrics from songs or album titles and this one just jumped into my head um, in a house of lies and I gave it to my publisher and I went oh yeah it's a really interesting title I went okay I'll write a book now called that and I'll put a house in it and, and some lies so that was it I got the title first and then sort of start to think what the plot might be and where do we find uh, where do we find Rebus? Where are we at the start of House of Lights? <clears throat> well, we find him at the foot of the staircase, dreading the thought of climbing up the stairs. He's got COPD, emphysema, as it used to be called, and so um, climbing stairs is a is a difficult proposition for him now. So his health is slowly but surely failing. Um, he's retired. Uh, he gets uh, involved in a case because. Ten years before, a private eye, a private detective had gone missing. It was a missing persons inquiry. He was, Rebus was part of the inquiry team. That body has now turned up and it seems to have been in the boot of the private detective's car for the last ten years in an area of land that the original search, you know, took in. So why did the original case not find the body? Um, and, you know, were there any shortcuts? Were there any problems with the original inquiry? And so it's, so as well as a live murder inquiry, of this private detective, there's also a looking back at Rebus's part in the original case and whether there was a cover-up, whether there was malfeasance or, or just bad policing. Can we assume that there's all of those? <laughs> we can assume there's all of those, yeah. I mean, because the um, one of the resonances with the title is that the police headquarters in Edinburgh used to be called the Big House. Um, Lothian and Borders Police HQ, no longer that was the big house. And so the, what, some of the lies that are being told are being told by the, the people who work there, which are the cops. 
Uh, a lot of people will have read this already, but where is where is Siobhan? Where is Cafferty? Where, how, are, how are they involved? Let's, how do we piece this one together, Ian? Well, we've got a real life, you know, now that a body has turned up in the, in the back of a car and was obviously murdered, we've got a murder inquiry. So this team, the major incident team, are parachuted into Edinburgh. And Siobhan Clark, a local detective inspector, is brought on board for various reasons as part of that team. Um, then Malcolm Fox, who's working at the, uh, the the Scottish Crime Campus, is asked to go and take a look because um, the, the upper echelons are a bit worried that by digging into the original police inquiry, there'll be a few skeletons will be thrown up. So um, the gang's all there. And meantime, Morris, Gerald, Cafferty, Big Ger, the, the you know, one-time... Um, boss of Edinburgh's underworld is back and in control uh, and he's got a few things that he was doing back at that time when the private eye was murdered that he really doesn't want to come to light either so everybody's got secrets hey, you, and, and, and you have a phrase I think Rebus is talking to one of the one of the old timers about the smell of the old days and the old ways and I thought that you know I thought that was very evocative in thinking yes it's almost it it's happened over over a relatively short amount of time but that old way of working the old procedures they're kind of gone now. Yeah, I mean, we all know that. I mean, in the, in the, even in the last decade, the world of technology has moved on so quickly, so rapidly. I mean, all around us, technology has moved on with mobile phones and the internet and everything else and social media that didn't exist, but also policing, the way that forensics operated and the, the, the amount of CCTV available. And, and, you know, you couldn't check people's mobile phone records the way you can do now. You couldn't need a, no GPS or nothing like the same amount of GPS and stuff. So, yeah, the world's moved on. And, and Rebus is one of these kind of Luddites who's looking back, you know, I love it when people try and explain things like WhatsApp uh, to, or Twitter to Rebus because he goes, I just don't understand why anybody would spend their time doing that. He doesn't get it. <laughs> uh, the, the least surprising revelation in this podcast is going to be that I loved this Rebus book. I've been a massive fan of Rebus for uh, a long time. I remember uh, late 90s, my uh, girlfriend and I at the time, uh, now my wife, we were looking for books that we wanted to read and I hadn't really read anything since university that had been something that I just wanted to read for myself. And um, somebody suggested to me Black and Blue and so I picked up Black and Blue and read that, which, as memory serves, and I've, I've not read it since, but as memory serves, opens with this amazing sequence with Rebus questioning a guy who is admitting to being a serial killer. And I thought, and it had me straight away, I thought, oh my goodness, someone right at the start of the book admitting to being a serial killer and we basically then devoured, devoured Rebus books from that point on. And so I... Obviously, I love this one as well. And there is something I want to ask you about um, ticking clocks. You clearly, what, I as a reader, I'm loving these Rebus books, but you are very subtly through the, the early books saying he's getting close to retirement, you know. He's getting close to retirement. Pretty soon he's going to have to retire. You as a reader are going, oh, no, 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 no. Or maybe he can come out of retirement. Maybe, maybe can Ian bring him out of retirement? And you did bring him out of retirement and he's still investigating cases. And now we've got another ticking clock because you've already mentioned the COPD, this sort of the the uh, what used to be called emphysema. And I, as I'm reading this book, I'm like, oh no, don't give him, don't give him another ticking clock. He, he's not going to die, is he? We don't want that because we've got to keep this going. And I I know as a reader, I um uh, I I you know I just want this to keep going. And I know there must be a great temptation as a writer to just go, do you know what? We can go ad infinitum here. But, uh, but it feels to me like you are being particularly disciplined in saying, no, A, he's going to retire, and B, we are living in the real world and time is going to catch up with him. 
Yeah, and I've not put a lot of thought into it, Matt. I, you know, I, I do it from book to book, so I don't have a long-term notion of where the books will end or how they'll end. And when I start writing a new book, I never know if he'll be alive or dead at the end. The story will demand what it demands. What the story needs, it will get. It will tell me what I need to do with Rebus and the various other characters. Because um, I make it up as I go along, a bit like Lee Child. And... Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I decided early on he would live in real time. My wife then said to me recently, look, he's had such a dissolute life, surely his health will catch up with him eventually. I thought, OK. And that keeps the series fresh. That keeps me on my toes. Because I go, OK, who's, what's happened to Reba since we last met him? The world has moved on. Um, he's no longer in a job. His health has moved on. His relationships have moved on. So it's like I'm almost writing about a new character every book. And uh, and I like that. I like the challenge. I, like, I love the challenge of him no longer being a cop. He walks into a police station and I go, "Yes, sir. Can we help mm. you?" And he goes, "Well, I used to work here. Can I go upstairs and see the CID?" No, I'm sorry, sir. Uh, you're a civilian now. You know, and, he, and he's he's fighting against that all the time. But more and more, he's coming up against barriers. And I've got that's a chal- another challenge for me is how do I get yet again inveigle him into a police inquiry? Can you explain just a bit more about what you said just then about the story gets what the story demands uh, because that suggests as though there's a kind of a logical structure which is sort of set in play by your opening chapters I don't know can you just explain what you meant no I, I what, you know what I said was that I make up as I go along and I do so when I start a novel I mean for example with this book okay I've got a body in the boot of a car and the body belongs to a private detective and a private detective was investigating links between possibly organized crime and and, and high-ranking police officers um, I don't know who killed them or why when I start the book. So I know as little as the detectives when I start. And as they are building up the case and interviewing people and, um, you know, digging into the files and finding stuff out, so I am finding stuff out. Sure, but, but, you, but you said at the start of the book you don't know whether Rebus is going to be alive at, yeah. at the end of it. Yeah, because so, 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 be a... so, But what, if, what is it in the structure of the book which would make you then at some stage go, oh, he's survived? Or conversely, once you, you go... Okay, well, maybe this is it. Well, I think it's, you know, as you get towards the climax and this kind of big unveiling of who the killer is and why they did it and what or what happened, then you say, well, you know, uh, oh, so-and-so is going to die or so-and-so is going to live. I mean, in the pre- a previous book, uh, I got to the climactic scene and there was Daryl Christie, a young gangster up against Cafferty, his his nemesis or his, the older version of himself. And I went, okay, do they both make it? Does one of them not make it? Did not, does neither of them make it? I'd, when I started writing that scene, this confrontation, I had no idea who was going to be alive or wow. dead at the end. And that's part of the fun for me, is that I don't know until I get there what the story wants me to do with it. And then the story tells me. How close has Rebus come to not making it to the next one? Well, I, you know, the first book, he died at the end of the first book. I mean, at the end of the first draft of the first Rebus novel, he shot and killed. And then, and I, I can't find that draft, sadly. Uh, it was typed. It was a typed-up draft, I think, or maybe even handwritten. I can't remember. Anyway, I can't find it, but I'm, I'm sure he died at the end. And then the second draft, I thought, oh, I quite liked him. <laughs> maybe, maybe he survived. So it's been a few yes. times. It's been a few times. We'll be back with more with Ian Rankin talking about In a House of Lies after this. Uh, this is Books of the Year. Ian Rankin is here, and A House of Lies is his number one smash. Now it's number seven, but it's going to go. <laughs> it's going back. It's going to go yeah, yeah, back yeah. up uh, again. Can you can you read us a, a paragraph? Read us a few lines, Ian. Give, yeah. us, give us a flavour of House of Lies. Okay. Well, I mean, at the very beginning, uh, some kids have been out playing in the woods, and one of them has been shoved into a hollow. And when he gets down there, hidden under bracken and what have you, he finds a car. 
I think it's a polo, Ginger muttered, then to clarify. The car, it's a VW polo. Rick was rubbing moss across his palms. Nettles got me, he complained. Alan had circled to the passenger side and yanked the door open. The hinges creaked to resistance. Looks empty, he said, climbing in. The key was in the ignition, so he turned it, but nothing happened. Dead, he announced. Somebody nicked it and dumped it, Ginger concluded, growing bored already and giving one wing a kick. Rick had unzipped his fly and was urinating against a clump of ferns. Jimmy had gone to the back of the car and was pressing the release button for the boot. It opened an inch, then stuck. Help me out, he commanded Ginger, the pair of them flinching as the rear window shattered. They turned towards Rick, who'd thrown the stone and was now grinning as he brushed dirt from his hands. Let's get out of here, Rick said. Ginger was peering through the hole in the glass. Something's in the back, he announced, wait until the others had joined him. Looks like a... looks like a skeleton, Alan offered. Reading from In a House of Lies, uh, I wonder... You, you mentioned technology at the beginning of our conversation, and I wonder if... Um, you go back and read the older Rebus's, you know, even though it's sort of all in our lifetimes, it's just, back, you know, back a, a, a couple of decades. But many people see the Rebus books as a, like a social history of Scotland. You can certainly read them because the world has changed and Scotland has changed. The UK has changed uh, so much in those times. But the technology side of things is an issue for a writer, isn't it? And particularly if you're writing uh, crime novels the way you are, and particularly social media and mobile phones. I'm just interested in, in the way that impacts on the the way you have to address particular uh, conundrums, particular setups. The fact that people will be able to film it, the fact that people will be able to call, presents you as a writer with a whole bunch of issues which you didn't have when you when you started. Absolutely. And when I, when I go back and read those early books, they do read like they're historical novels now. You know, Rebus hasn't got a mobile phone. He's not even got a computer in his house. Laptops aren't haven't been invented yet. Um, the police station might have one big clunky computer in it somewhere. Um, fax machine is a god that sits in the middle of the office. And if a fax comes churning out, you know it must be important. And, uh, you know, within, within the lifetime of these books, that's all gone. It's all changed. And uh, mind you, he still drives the same old Saab that he always drove. So that's... That's good. Um, but yeah, and as a writer, you go, oh, so they've got mobile phones. So if they're being kidnapped, they'll just put the GPS on and somebody will come and find them or they'll just text help and being kidnapped, which is why in films, especially in TV shows, you get the no signal, you <laughs> know, or oh, the, no, the I'm in another dead. difficult area. <laughs> battery dead. Oh, no. If only I charged the phone up at the beginning of the show, I'd be fine now. Um, so, yeah, we've got to take all that on board and we've got to take it on board because the readership are incredibly knowledgeable. So they know that this stuff's available to the police, CCTV. Lots of it is available to the police. They can check what traffic was doing at any particular time. All of that stuff um, has changed. Luckily, my guy Rebus is a Luddite, so I get to be a bit of a Luddite as well. I don't need to know too much about that because he doesn't. I, but I just wonder if one of the reasons that you're very active on, well, pretty active on Twitter, for example, is that you, you kind of need to know how these things operate, don't you? No, that's not why I'm on Twitter. I'm on, I'll use Twitter like a little diary. It's just like I used to keep a page-a-day diary every year from I was 12 till I was 32, and that's how I use it. I just can scroll back and see what I was doing on any particular day. It just happens to be a diary that you share with people. I want to ask you about another um, aspect of technology because we had Lee, Lee Child on last week talking about how he's not going to have a third Jack Reacher movie. He's going to, he's going to put it on a streaming service instead. Now, I remember um, you, Ian, doing an interview, I think it was with Simon on Red 
Radio 2 many years ago um, when um, you were talking about the biggest or the one of the most popular TV shows at the time was a show called The Wire, which I loved, uh, which went for five seasons. And part of the reason I loved it was things weren't resolved at the end of each episode. You were able to tell a story over the space of about a dozen episodes. And you were asked about The Wire and you said, it's great, but... These the people who make this show need to be aware of how lucky they are to be able to to build a show over twelve episodes, so they don't have to have everything resolved after after an hour or after two hours. Here we go. We can I can I can tell you this story as I would if I was writing a novel. Mm. And I wondered whether because you know I know when you were giving that interview, you know Netflix was still sending out DVDs in the post. There wasn't a streaming service. But that technology has now changed. And I wonder whether that's something that would give you a greater degree of freedom now. Imagine a, you know, a Rebus book set over 12 episodes of TV instead of just an hour or, or even just two hours. Well, you, you, you must be a soothsayer because just yesterday I was sent the script. Um, a really good scriptwriter, um, screenwriter and playwright called Gregory Burke has been working on a Rebus reboot for TV, and he sees it as being six or eight or ten or twelve hours, to tell one or two books. He might mash up one or two books, but do it over a length of time, because the reason I had that conversation before was that the Rebus books were being condensed into 45 minutes per book Mm. uh, by ITV, and so a lot was being thrown out, um, including a lot of the good stuff was being thrown out. Um, sometimes they only kept a title but changed the story completely to fit the 45-minute format on ITV. So my wife would watch Knots and Crosses and go, it's not, that wasn't the book. Yeah. It wasn't the book at all. And I'd go, I don't know, because I don't watch it. I would be sitting upstairs whistling and playing records while she watched. I never watched an episode. But anyway, so I'm looking forward to reading um, what Gregory Burke has done uh, for a potential reboot and which um, broadcaster it would go to. I don't know whether it would be a streaming service or BBC or whatever. We've got used to it now. I think for a while, TV bosses thought that we had very short attention spans and so everything had to be wrapped up very quickly. And then along came things like, you know, um, uh, Netflix and HBO and stuff and said, hey, we can do 10, 20, 30 hours and we'll keep the audience with us. Uh, and BBC and ITV went, oh, OK, maybe we could do that as well. So you start to get your broad churches and your The Fall and this and that and the other, where you would take place over a long time and you would get... You'd get a sense of place and you'd get a sense of character development in a way that you weren't getting if it was condensed into 45 minutes. Yeah. And, and people relish that. You know, they can't wait, e- even if it's a slow burn. That's why they want to be a part of that. They don't want it to be all over in 45 minutes. Absolutely. Now you get this binging thing where you, can, you get it all dumped on a streaming service, you know, iPlayer or whatever, and you get it all there at the same time. And so you can either watch it week by week or you can just watch it over the course of a nice leisurely weekend. Something my wife and I used to do with the West Wing when we got the box sets oh, yeah, of the West yeah, Wing. Yeah, no, and you say, let's just do season four this weekend. <laughs> now, when you watch that, that does feel like oh, from, my a, goodness, yeah. from another century, which oh, of course wow. Golden age. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, Matt mentioned um, our conversation with Lee Child and I asked Lee whether he's ever surprised by anything that Jack Reacher does. And I'm just interested in this same sort of question to you. As you're, as you're writing the story, are you ever surprised by Rebus? Um, surprised by things that he does because philosophically I think, oh, he wouldn't, would, he, would he do that? Or maybe he would. Um, no, but sometimes there's stuff from his past that I don't know about until I start writing about him. The reason I keep writing about him specifically is that the stuff he's holding back from me, there's information about him that I don't yet know. There are things that he's, there are skeletons in his closet, there are emotion, bits of emotional parts of him I've not quite reached yet, as it were. And, um, and, I, and I like exploring those. I mean, right now, with him having some health issues, 
that's you know he now knows that he's mortal he's mere mortal man um he can't uh antagonize people with his heft his physical kind of heft the way he used to he can't intimidate the way he used to so he's changing he's having to adapt to changing circumstances so he just keeps surprising me i don't think he surprises himself but he keeps surprising me because uh He's reacting to the world in different ways. And there's a lot that we don't... I mean, people have said to me, look, even if, if and when he does go, you know, you could go back in time and do the early stuff. You can do the kind of books when he was either in the army in Northern Ireland or when he just joined the police. There's at least 10 years of his police stuff that we don't know about. But those would be historical novels. They would be novels set in the 70s and 80s. I would have to dust off my record collection again. <laughs> and does that appeal? It kind of does. I don't know if I'm the right person to do it or not because, you know, I'm, I'm kind of impatient about research and those books, you know, how much was a pint of milk? How much was a pint of beer? What kind of car would he be driving? What would he be wearing? All that stuff. I would have to do some research into it. And uh, it's nice when they're set in the present day because the research is just walking down the street. Um, Michael Stipe of R.E.M. fame, well, formerly of R.E.M., he had a, a, an expression when a song came quickly, he used to talk about vomit songs. Um, it was because that's how, that it would just, something would occur and he'd write it and it would, easy, it would just be like a cat coughing up a furball. It would just be like a, a vomit song. Um, <laughs> do you uh, have... Charming analogy, by <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I only mentioned it because it's Michael Stipe, so it makes it kind of cool. Yeah. But, I, but you write you write quickly, but I just wonder whether there are whether there are bits in it where you get completely lost and you and you it's hard to actually keep up with the story as it's occurring to you uh, yeah I mean another I mean another analogy which I like even better than Michael Stipe is uh, the Scots poet Norman McCaig who was asked how long it takes to write a poem and he said one cigarette sometimes two <laughs> and um, uh, yeah I write the books very quickly I mean the first draft you know here we are in, in 2018 January this year I had nothing January all I had was a deadline of June and I went and holding my wife, panic set in, the adrenaline got going, and I came back with an idea of what the plot might be for the next book. Started it in February and delivered it in June. So that is written very quickly. I mean, um, that that is... And the first draft is written in between 30 and 40 days, and it is written furiously and quickly. And if I make mistakes, I just go, fine, I'll fix that in the edit, I'll fix that later on, it can all be fixed. But let's just concentrate on getting this story down on paper. And I think if it's written quickly, it injects pace into the reading of it as well. And because I don't take a lot of notes before I start, before not a lot of planning or structure before I start I need to write it quickly so I don't forget I don't forget what's supposed to happen next or how that character connects to that character or that I've got to go back and do this bit again or go to that scene so I write them very quickly so they are and and do they come from the subconscious do they come from a sense of panic I don't know Sometimes it's like a book just wants to be told. It's like a book wants to be written, a story wants to be told, and the story makes itself very easy for me to get it down on paper. I'm interested in that speed of thought because there's, there's a sequence, which I'm obviously not going to give away, but there is a sequence towards the end of this book where Rebus does something that even I, with no legal training, realise straight, this is highly, A, highly unethical, B, could jeopardise any future case against uh, the person that they've arrested. And I wondered when that happened... How much Ian Rankin knew that there was there was a real problem, or whether you whether you thought thought ahead and go, I know how I how I get this guy out of this. But w- were you at that time with that speed of thought coming to you then of of goodness me, what what have I put him in here? You know, I think the thing is, Matt, you sort of go, will the reader fall for this? Will the reader accept this, that Rebus would do this and that people would allow him to do it? And there's a bit of argument. It's people going, I don't know about that. I don't, you know, are we really going to let him do that? Is he going to, you know? And um, and I think that 
kept at just the side of realism, just the right side of realism. And you're right. I mean, in a court of law, that could all have gone very badly wrong for everybody involved. Um, but the court of law happens after the book finishes. My books never take us that far. They never take us to the actual prosecution. I always stop because I've got no idea what goes on in a courtroom. So... Uh, <laughs> Uh, so I stopped before they would get to that point. So yeah, the whole thing could have been thrown out. I mean, who knows what happens after the final page of the book? Um, I, I certainly don't. Um, but it just seemed to me that I thought, oh, you know, realistically, this is where Rebus would be going with this. He'd be saying, look, get me in there. I can do this. Um, and eventually, because there's nothing else that the police can do, they go, all right, let's do it. It's like a last last chance saloon. Um, now, is it realistic? Possibly not. But I know lots of cops, and what they like about the Rebus books, that the Rebus books present an idea of what policing could be if they were allowed to get on with it and weren't hidebound by lots of paperwork. It brings me back to Rebus being a bit of a dinosaur. He's very much the Gene Hunt figure. Oh, yeah. You know, and the thing about that series, Life on Mars, is I think we were supposed to be on the side of the touchy-feely, politically correct, young cop John Sim. We were not supposed to be on the side of the Sweeney-style, <laughs> bottle of whiskey in the bottom drawer, slap the suspect around Gene Hunt. But we all fell for Gene Hunt. The viewers just wanted more and more Gene Hunt because he was, he was a maverick. He was dangerous. He was dark. He was brooding. And he was on the side of the angels in a weird way. But he would, he would push really hard at the boundaries of what was allowable to get his results. How's, how's the tour been? And you've been on uh, tour, I mean, talk about the book, but also with uh, forensic e- experts. And so, how, how did that work out? Was that a fun thing to do? Yeah, I, we did, last year for Rebus's 30th anniversary, we did a little weekend festival in Edinburgh. And as part of that, I was on stage with a serving cop, a retired detective, a forensic anthropologist, a historian. And the audience loved it. They said it was really interesting getting to see the professionals talk about the pros and cons of fiction, what fiction does, why it does what it does, what it gets wrong, what it sometimes gets right, what it can do that the real world can't always do. Um, and so we thought, let's replicate that in this tour. So every city I've gone to, every every night, it's been a different set of people, professionals. I don't know who they are. I've not met them before until we meet just backstage before we go on. Forensic anthropologists, pathologists, um, cops, ex-cops, very senior police officers, um, um, all kinds of people. It's been absolutely fascinating. And one of the, my favourite bits was that I was signing books and a guy came up and he said, I, you know, I came along to see the professionals. I didn't really come along to see you. <laughs> he said, but I'm buying your book anyway because I thought it was really interesting. He said, I'm a forensic podiatrist. And I said, what's that then? And he said, well, feet and shoes and stuff like that, footwear. Wow. So footprints found at a scene of a murder or a crime, um, footprints in mud or footprints in blood. You can tell a lot of the, the size of the shoes, the make, maybe possibly when they were bought, where they were bought, the pe- person, how they walk, in steps and things. Do they, do they step in or step out? Um, their gait can tell you what kind of height they might be. All that information you're getting from, from uh, either bare feet or from footwear. A forensic podiatrist. Don't be too surprised. I was going <laughs> to say, <laughs> next book. Uh, let me introduce you, Rebus. We've got a forensic podiatrist. You go, what? <laughs> That's good because I've got a bunion. Rebus <laughs> uh, Ian Rankin, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Thank you. Uh, many thanks to Ian Rankin, who I'm sure will be back uh, very shortly. Yes, he will. And he signed a book for my wife, which will go down very well and means that I no longer need to get a Christmas present for my wife. Excellent news for everyone. OK, if you'd like to email about about that, I can only apologise, Jill, but it was... I mean, it's a nice book and it's a nice thing to have. She's going to be so happy with that. I still think maybe... I mean, she, does she like there's, Ian Rankin books? Yes, she does. She loves them. Okay. Yes. No Coco Chanel this year. Ian Rankin books signed. Oh, so many brownie points for me. Uh, coming next from us, you'll get uh, one of our famous Q&As with Ian Rankin. Thanks for downloading us. 
fiber-rich foods or prebiotics are the number one gut-healthy thing you're not eating enough of. According to the USDA, more than 90% of women and 97% of men do not meet their recommended intakes for dietary fiber. Supergut makes getting this essential nutrient back into your diet easy and delicious with award-winning foods that are clinically proven to boost gut health and all that comes with it. Go to supergut.com and use code Ethan to save 20% on your first order. That's S-U-P-E-R-G-U-T dot com, code Ethan, to save 20% on your first order.